the Scuttlebutt Podcast. Our guest today is Tom Schumann. Uh, Tom is our uh, very special guest. He's actually currently still active duty, our first active duty guest, or person we've convinced to come on the show. Uh, Tom is currently at the Naval War College studying strategy and the founder of PB Abate. Tom, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. Uh, you were somebody that I think at least three or four of our prior guests have recommended that we talk to. So it's, it's good to finally have you on. Um, uh, big expectations, big shoes to fill for you today. So <laughs> well, I would say coming highly recommended. Uh, forget all that. I am a big, uh, you know, uh, under promise over deliver. So let's just say uh, I suck. Let's start with a that I suck and then go from me sucking uh, and then <laughs> we'll set the bar super low. <laughs> yeah. There you Good. go. I like it. I like it. Uh, give us the, the story about how you got here. What uh, possessed you to join the Marine Corps um, and lead us up till now in, in the, the short and sweet version. Yeah. The shortest and sweetest version. I, I, I the shorter and the sweeter, uh, I think. And so uh, I think my story is definitely uh, pretty a boring story, but one that uh, has had interesting characters along the way. And so uh, I think it's much more uh, interesting to talk about the folks that I've encountered and um, because they're what really makes my story uh, have any value. But uh, I, I, yeah, 9-11 is the down and dirty. Um, I was in high school and I, ne I, I never desired to serve. I know didn't know probably that the Marine Corps was a uh, brand of service, um, didn't have family that served, wasn't watching GI Joe, didn't have, uh, you know, so, uh, but that happened. I was in high school. I said, okay, I'm going to do something about that. And I think there's the additional layer is that my mom, um, who came from a very hard background, uh, she didn't graduate high school. She had me when she was 19, uh, worked her ass off, um, Chicago cop, and she afforded me opportunities that she could have never had for herself or dreamed of even for herself. And I felt like uh, that's there's something about America that maybe that uh, a single woman can can do that, and um, I want to pay into that. So probably a little bit of civic duty, and then uh, definitely a little bit of hey, uh, I guess there's bad guys out in the world, and and if there's bad guys out in the world, somebody's got to do something about that. So that's probably what led me in my service. Um, I'm an infantry officer. Uh, I went to Afghanistan as a platoon commander um, in Kilo Three Five. I went back. Uh, with first recon as a JTAC and an advisor, did two tours, um, did a company command, um, went to Australia, and while I was in Australia, I, I read I read a book. Uh, I read Charles Dickens' Great Expectations, and I said, "Oh, I like books." And then at the same time, the the uh, Marine Corps said we need somebody to come teach literature at the Naval Academy. I didn't know where the Naval Academy was. I'm not an academy guy, but I said, "Well, I like this one book, and if uh, they're gonna." let me go read books and talk about books. I could, uh, I could, I could be down with that. And, uh, I wanted to get out of my comfort zone a little bit. I wanted a new challenge. I'd been in the infantry for 10 years. And so through my application, next thing I knew I was in the graduate program at Georgetown. It was nothing like I had assumed graduate school would be like, or an English program was like, I wasn't an English major. So I thought we would just, you read the book that you like, you write a little three or five page book report about it. Negative. Uh, that was not the case. I was immediately getting my ass kicked. And uh, I always say it was like I showed up to the MLB All-Star game and Randy Johnson was throwing 100-mile-per-hour heaters. And I was like, uh, I should be in the T-ball league. 
Uh, that's what grad school <laughs> felt like. Um, I went and t- I taught a couple years at the Naval Academy. And uh, from there, I was selected to come attend the Naval War College. So that's the career. That's how we got here. And that's, yeah. A couple of things I want to touch on there. Um, I'm sure that you're cut from steel if your mom uh, is a Chicago police officer. Talk about some big shoes to fill. Um, that, that certainly is, is something. Um, and two, uh, more of a question is the only requirement to teach Marines English, like having read an actual book, like, or is there? (laughs) Yeah, I I think the, you know, I don't know what the Marine Corps is thinking, um, truly, uh, picking me to to go teach English. I had failed English in college, not for a lack of aptitude, uh, but a lack of effort. Not something I'm proud of. Uh, Wasn't a great undergrad college student. Um, I, can't tell you how I ended up in that program. Uh, I'm glad I, I went, but I, I, you know, one thing I don't love is the Marine Cran joke, a little overplayed, overused, I think. And, and, and um, I think that the Marine Corps is actually Marines in general. And, and um, especially in the infantry, I find a lot of people who enjoy uh, learning and, and education and, uh, studying. And so, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't know. I, uh, I ended up there random, pretty random, pretty random, but, uh, really, really happy that I had the opportunity. I I was a hammer, you know, and the whole world was a nail. And then I got to go study humanities. And when you study the humanities, you start to get different lenses to see the world and you start to understand, you know, how humans and, and, and these different experiences all work. And so, um really it opened my aperture uh to different ways of thinking and 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 led me to be a much more critical thinker and um i'm, I'm yeah i'm super uh, thankful that i had that opportunity no that's good i appreciate you being patient i had to kind of test the waters a little bit and see see where you're at on that uh i mean that 100 percent playfully um i i think you're right though um I, I think that my experience in college was exactly that. It was um, being able to read and, and do all these other things kind of exposes you to different ways of thinking and, and allows you to kind of think deeper. And that, that's a good thing. That, that is a very good thing. I think the military encourages that, uh, but maybe not as much as they should, at least on the enlisted side. I don't know if that was your experience on the, the officer side, though. Sure. When did you go to college? How old were you? Uh, I so we exited in 2018, and I was I don't know what was that a couple of years ago? 26? 25, 26, yeah, 25, 26 years old. So a little bit older. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's the key. You know, a lot of 18 year old dudes uh, probably aren't ready to be serious about their you know education. And, and I think that added maturity is really the, the kind of the key ingredient. So, some definitely are. There are plenty of 18-year-old dudes who get to college and take their studies seriously and do well. Uh, for some of us, I, I think at least in my in my case, that's not where I was at 18 when I started college. I was just total bro idiot. Um, so I think, I think going back to, yeah, uh, going back to college at 33, um, was a much different experience that I, I, I actually said, oh, man, someone is paying me to put something into my brain right now. What an awesome opportunity. Uh, I should take advantage of this. 
And so, you know, you starting at 25, 26, I, I think is, is, is probably um, that the maturity part is, is probably pretty key to a, a much more worthwhile and successful endeavor there um, when you get to the university. Well, and that's such like a common thing too. like all most of the people that we've interviewed on the show. It was like this. A lot of them have a very similar story. Like, oh, I tried to go to college, hated college at 18, 19. So I figured hey, I'll join the Army, Navy, Marine Corps, whatever. Um, and then later in life ended up going back. Did you join the Marine Corps as straight as an officer or did you start out enlisted? Uh, I commissioned as an officer. I, I was an ROTC while I was in college. And 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 even even some of the 25, 26 year olds who kind of get out after the first or second enlistment that go to college, I think the, the ones that have a particularly that still have a tough time, um, just don't have the humility going in. You know, they think like, oh, I I've seen some shit, you know, I've been to Iraq, I know it's like, okay, like, well, how Everybody would tell me when I was getting my ass kicked in grad school, it's like, you, you've got all this experience. You need to tell them about what the world's really like. Tell these 22-year-old grad students what the, I'm like, we're studying Hamlet. Like, what, do, what am I going to say? Well, in, in Afghanistan, it's like, who gives a shit? We're talking about Hamlet. Like, it, it's not, like, I, it's not a time for me to start trying to tell people about uh, what the, what, what. Uh, attacking an enemy machine gun positions like it's, it's time for me to learn about literature and writing <coughs> you know and and so i think um veterans who even after their service still find it have that a, a challenge it, it, i think it's you got to take off the ball cap don't go to school with a coyote desert tan backpack you know uh take off the Punisher t-shirt, you know, and, and, and go there as a place like, Hey, this person is a doctor in this subject. They probably, and, and, and what an awesome opportunity, uh, to listen and to learn and to, and so I, I think, um, yeah, you, you, you probably, and that's probably the other thing when you're 18, you think, you know, everything, you know, and as I get older, I realize I, I know less and less. And so I think that's probably the other thing is that uh, you got to go in there with it, with, with, it, with an ounce of humility and it, and it makes that um, experience, I think, much, um, much better. Why do you think, and I don't think that um, people going back into, well, let me start over. I agree with what you're saying, 100%. Why do you think it is that people get out and then, come back to whatever it is that they're doing, whether that be school, whether that be a job and have that chip on their shoulder, thinking that they know everything, uh, you know, maybe at a certain age, it will come about where they'll kind of graduate out of that. But regardless of age, I think that people still experience that. Where does that chip come, come, come from? And why do people have that? Yeah, I would say two things. One, insecurity, you know, when, when you aren't comfortable or, or confident, um in a new environment you kind of revert back to what you know and so rather than kind of saying i'm a boot again you have to you have to say i'm a boot like i've never been in a in a college environment i've never been in a graduate program you know i'm a boot and so returning back to boot status people don't like that to me i understand that in life i'm a perennial boot you know, I was never a dad. And then I was a dad. And guess what? I was never a dad to a kid at three years old. I've never been a dad to a teenager. Right. And so I'm, I'm continually a, a boot. And, and as a husband, uh, as, as it doesn't matter where 
I'm going back to the fleet here after the war college. I'm going to be, you know, probably a battalion executive officer. How many times have I been an executive officer for an organization of 1,200 people? Zero times. So even though I've got 15 years of Marine Corps experience, I'm at boot when it comes to being a battalion XO, you know? And so it, it takes an, an ounce of uh, humility and, and understanding. And, and rather than overcompensating with that through that insecurity and being like, ah, oh, I'm too good for this, or I know it. it's like, uh, nope. I'm, and then the other thing is just an overattachment an over attachment to an identity um, as, as a, as a veteran, you know, that, that, that you allow your uh, uniform, your rank, uh, your, your identity as a soldier or a Marine, you, 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 you can't let that go. And so you bring that into the classroom, you bring that to your job, you bring that. It's like, okay, that is not, that, that is part of who you are. Um, but it's not, it's, it's not, your eternal identity, you know, it's a chapter. And rather than uh, starting to write those next pages, it's uncomfortable because those pages are blank, you know, and it's like, well, I, I now, and so, but uh, it's, it's an overattachment to an identity. And um, that's why, you know, transition, there's that, there's an identity crisis going on. And rather than, it's going to be uncomfortable, no matter what, transition is always, always uncomfortable. You know, it doesn't matter if you, if you did a study abroad in high school or, or in college and you went to, to Rome or London for a semester, you come back and you feel a little bit different. You know, there's always transitions. If you go on a long vacation and you come back from your long vacation, there's a, tra so transitioning is hard. And, uh, but to be successful, you have to kind of let go of some of those things in your past. And that's scary. That's scary. I'm not saying that it's easy. Uh, it's hard, but um, if you want to grow, evolve, uh, progress, then you've got to uh, go through some of those growing pains of, of where, you know, these new experiences. Yeah, I, I think that that's very true. And especially I feel for those people who joined the service at 18, because I think that they face a unique challenge when they get out because they haven't had the time in their adult life to kind of establish maybe who they are while well, you're going to be a lot different when you've spent your entire adult life serving the military and then you get out and it's like oh there's like not even any remnants of anything to kind of like look back on almost mm -hmm. so <laughs> I, I think that there there are unique challenges on on both ways uh, it, it sounds like to me that you've got a really strong long-term learner's mindset is that something that you've always had or where did that come about and what kind of transition to that, I guess, did you see over your time in so far? Yeah, that the learner, the long-term learner's mindset is, is a great way to put it. I would say, no, that's not something I've uh, always had. I, I think when I, you know, when I came to the fleet, I felt like I knew what I was doing. I think there's, there's too many people that it used to be like, Oh, officer, uh, think they know everything and, and you've got to just um, always defer or default to your platoon sergeant or your squad leader. If the officer doesn't know anything and isn't prepared to command and lead, then they shouldn't be commanding or leading, you know? And so there's, there's a balance of, Hey, I'm here for a reason uh, because I've been trained uh, and schooled to be able to lead you. Also, there are plenty of things that I still have to learn here. Uh, so I'm going to be deferential at times to my squad leader and my platoon sergeant. But if I can't lead 
then you know find some then just then just make the platoon sergeant the platoon commander you know and so uh i i think i hit the fleet probably still with an uh, understanding that i was going to be learning from other people's experiences my ncos my staff ncos but it, as far as like a real commitment to learning i i would say and this is very uh, regrettable it wasn't until uh, company command that i started to get serious about being a student and so it was my battalion commander a guy who i really respected he was very very smart uh and he said you know I didn't start getting serious about my uh, personal and professional development uh, till way too late. And I was like, well, this guy is really smart. He's much smarter than me. And I'm not really committed to that. I probably ought to get busy uh, uh, about that. And so that's it. I think that's when I started to get curious. And when you get curious and, and you had that desire to learn, um, that was really kind of the, the, the genesis of, of my journey into being a lifelong learner. And then, I think I couple that with the idea is that you've never arrived, you know, at, at no point um, do you arrive in life. I think you always have to earn your seat at the table. You have to always earn your keep. And, uh, and, and people who are through learning are through, you're just through period. And so at, at any point in life, if I feel like, okay, I've, I've got it, I know it, I'm probably in a really bad space, I think. And so to me, uh, there's, and, and, and like I said, the more you learn, the more you realize there's more to learn. And so I, I, I'm in a, I'm in, you know, this, this phase of, of kind of constantly trying to hone, shape and develop my most lethal weapon, which is my mind. And so uh, there's a, you can spend your entire life kind of uh, sharpening that and, and investing in that. And, and there's going to be more. And so that's where I'm at now is that uh, I know that uh, every day I got to go earn my keep. What do you think is the the most important thing to starting down that journey? Obviously, it's kind of an open-mindedness and willingness to be wrong a lot and admit that you don't know everything. What kinds of things did you do or maybe can other people be doing to kind of start that journey? Yeah, I mean, you said... Uh, a, a willingness to admit that there are some things that you don't know, you know, otherwise known as humility. And so I, I think, again, it starts with a with an element of humility, and then you, you, you pair that humility with curiosity. And being curious, having the desire to learn, um, I think is, is really what's going to help you expand that aperture. And so, but I, I find that once you start you just have to start. And so once you get into one book, you're going to want to get it. And so when I'm reading a book, I see a reference or something else. I'm like, Oh, like, well, what the hell is that thing? And so now I've got like four books open and I'm trying to cross reference each, uh, the material across each one. And so I, I think it's, uh, it's just about having that curiosity with the element of humility. Um, and once you get going, it's just like anything, when you go to the gym, it's always the hardest part about getting back into fitness is just starting you know it's always the just starting part and, and once you get going even if you suck even if you can't move a lot of weight you're like okay like I'm, I'm and so same thing you know if you haven't been reading and if you haven't been uh taking serious you know your studies it seems maybe really intimidating on the uh, uh just on the outside of that but you just got to start climbing and then once you once you start climbing uh once you get in there you'll find that it's the same thing with writing it's like 
how could I write? It's like, I don't know how to write. It's like, oh, just put a word down on the paper and then like put another word down on the paper. And like, uh, you'll find that at some point you've written something and it may suck and that's fine, uh, but you just keep working at it. You've been writing for some time? Uh, I started writing in grad school, so that's 2018. And what I found through writing is I, I really started to make meaning. And and to me, I had done three deployments. Uh, I had, again, I'd been in the infantry for for ten years straight, and I never took the time to unpack those experiences, or or to uh, uh, never took the time to really reflect and interrogate those experiences. And, and and the thing is that those experiences were definitely influencing how I was acting, how I was thinking about things, how I was feeling about things. And rather than say like, well, why are you thinking that thing? Why do you feel that way? Why do you, why are you acting in this destructive manner? Uh, it was, it was easier just to say, well, I've got Marines. I got to focus on my Marines. I got to, you know, and so to me, I was scared. Uh, I think more, I, what I would say is I would use the excuses that I was busy. I'm too busy. I don't have time. I don't have time. It's like, uh, no, you were scared to kind of try to find out what was going on and what was at the root of some of these issues that I was experiencing. And, and as I started to write, I was like, oh, okay, this is writing helps me know how I think about something. I don't really know what I think about something until I write about it. And, and as I write, it's, a, it's, just, it's just an act of discovery. Writing is an act of discovery for me. And, and so I was forced to write because I was in an English graduate program, you write. Uh, yes, yeah, so and you do a little bit of that. <laughs> yeah. And I was studying moral injury and uh, Vietnam film and literature. And, and so much of the Vietnam experience resonates, I think, with the people who fought in the global war on terror. And so uh, it was like there was an intersection with my personal experiences with what I was studying and what I was writing. And so, uh, but once you turn it on, I think it's hard to turn off. And so, once I started to use that creative kind of side of my brain, uh, I haven't been able to shut it off. And so I've been writing regularly um, since 2018. You talked about some of the, the intersections of Vietnam and the GWAT and some your parallels maybe to those stories. What were some of your biggest takeaways or aha moments from from beginning to write and putting those all those things together yeah it's a moral injury i think is it's probably the the moral injury component of of the vietnam soldier and marines experience to, to what i had uh experienced and can you kind of just back up a little bit and like i guess explain moral injury like i kind of got an idea but just in case anybody's unfamiliar kind of walk through i guess what that is Sure. Moral injury really comes down to the idea of betrayal. And so, you know, what that looked like in Vietnam is, is the idea that you were sold a strategy uh, that was probably not a strategy at all. And, and if you ever, if you read the Pentagon Papers or if you ever watch Ken Burns documentary um, about Vietnam, you'll find that the, from the president to the SECDAF to, to, to basically everybody in, in, in government and on the military side, everybody knew we weren't winning and everybody knew that this was a kind of a failed cause, but they wouldn't, uh, they still kept pushing, I think mainly for political ambitions, but 
So, so the idea uh, in Vietnam and other uh, moral injuries, like you're issued this new weapon, they started to get the M16s and they weren't working. And so when the government gives you something that it's supposed to help you or support you, and then you find that that thing doesn't work, you, you know, that's a betrayal. There's, there's a lot of friendly fire in Vietnam, especially from uh, artillery and close air support and a lot of that. Uh, so you, you, you're in a bad spot. You, you call from uh, artillery and then that artillery ends up killing you and your friends. Uh, that's moral injury. And so um, it's, it's, a, it's ultimately a betrayal of trust in, in somebody and someone or something that uh, you've been trained or, or, or led to believe is, is actually there to kind of take care of you or, or protect you. And so when you look at uh, not having a good strategy, you can, I think it's pretty obvious that uh, our strategy wasn't great in Iraq or Afghanistan. I experienced more injury really at the tactical level, at the company level, where my leadership, I felt um, at the company level, often um, wasn't looking out for my best interests. And so I, it's, it's, I, I like to say it's like blue on blue. It's almost like fratricide. It's not actually being shot at physically, but it's, it's, it's when I would, I would go out and I would fight the Taliban all day. And that was no problem. Because, you know, Stokes had this term premeditation morum, uh, a premeditation of evil. And so when I go outside the wire, I expect that the Taliban is going to try to shoot me, right? That's why I'm wearing a flak and a Kevlar. That's why I have uh, a condition one weapon. That's why I have a, 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 machine, a machine gunner with me. Uh, that's why I've been training for the last year. To, to, to locate close with. I've been doing fire and maneuver. I've been doing medevac drills all my training because I understand that I'm going to go out to a place that's hostile and danger and, and that there's going to be this competition where you're, you're the hunted or hunter, you're the predator or prey. And that in the arena of combat, uh, it's a life or death struggle. And, and I understood that. And so when I go outside the wire, I'm in, ye in the yellow. So Colonel Cooper had his color codes and, and the yellow means I'm alert and I'm aware and I can respond because I expect uh that bad shit's gonna happen and it did but when i come inside the patrol base the patrol base is supposed to be an area that i can rest and refit the patrol base is supposed to be an area where i can take off my flak and kevlar and i should be relatively safe you know so i'm vulnerable i go condition four i take off my gear i'm now vulnerable because i think i'm within friendly lines and when you find yourself inside friendly lines and still under attack, that's where a lot of that moral injury comes. And that, and that to me has been, you know, I was physically wounded in, in Afghanistan. I had all kinds of experiences uh, outside the wire in Afghanistan, but the wounds that have taken the longest uh, to heal definitely were the things that happened inside the wire. And that's kind of still what I'm trying to reconcile and work, and work through. Do you find that you lean more towards writing for that type of thing to, to help reconcile those, those wounds as you called them? Yeah. And, and storytelling. So just uh, the, whether it's through writing and, or, or speaking those stories into existence, I think um, is, is where a lot of the, the healing and the catharsis occurs and the meaning occurs, you know, um, as part of my capstone project with my graduate program, I started this idea called kill zone. And, and it's the idea that uh, at some point you're going to find yourself on the X at some point, something traumatic is going to happen at some point in life, you're going to get ambushed. 
whether in combat or just in everyday normal life, everybody experiences that trauma or experiences that ambush. It could be cancer, a car accident, your kid gets sick, whatever, you know, some point that it's coming for you. And, and what I wanted to explore is how can we be more resilient so that left of bang, left of that trauma, uh, we can start to get our defenses up so that um, we, we diminish the amount of trauma that occurs when that ambush actually uh, finally happens. Um, so think of it like a fighter going into a ring. You when, when you're a boxer and you go into the ring, you're gonna put your hands up because you're in a fight and you know you're gonna get hit. So that when that person hits you, it's not like if Mike Tyson punches you and your hands are up, you're like, oh, that was no big deal. No, I'm assuming it's probably still a pretty big deal, right? I assume it probably <laughs> still hurts. But I also assume that if you've got, if your hands were down at your side and he punched you, it's going to be a little bit worse, right? And so I'm, I was I was kind of saying like, let's be more resilient. Let's get our hands up because this thing called life has plenty of uh, ambushes out there and we're in a fight. And, and so, okay, so now I've been hit, right? The ambush happened. I'm in the kill zone. I've been hit because we're all it's happened and it's going to happen again. And that's just life. Okay. Well, now I got to start to recover. And so the act of recovery or getting off the X and, and the first part of recovering, I think is uh, identifying where you're injured, where are you hurt? And we do a really good job in the military of teaching Marine soldiers and sailors uh, how to assess a physical wound. Okay, you've got a gunshot wound to your arm. Like, we're going to put a tourniquet on. We're going to put you in a sling. You know, we know how to assess and treat physical wounds. What I feel like we don't spend enough time talking about or thinking about is, is invisible wounds. And so what I, what I kind of characterize it is there's, there's routine uh, priority and urgent casualties. And a routine casualty, you can usually do self-aid. Routine, ca routine casualty means I sprained my ankle. You know, I, I got to just tape it up. And then I, I can walk it off, you know, priority casualty means, oh, well, I've been, maybe I got shot in the leg and I got to have a buddy kind of help uh, firemen carry me off, right? I need that buddy aid. I, I'm a priority casualty. Well, urgent casualty is like, I've got a sucking chest wound and when, I, and I need to get to a higher echelon of care. And so too often when we put this into the invisible wounds place, uh, I, I think it's like, okay, am I routine right now? Am I just having a bad day? Am I in a little bit of a funk? All right. There's some things that I know I can do to kind of help myself get in the right headspace to kind of push through this little routine. And, 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 and we have to acknowledge that sometimes you just have a bad day. Sometimes you just are sad. Sometimes you're angry. Sometimes you're lonely. And what we've done is we've indoctrinated veterans to think that anytime you feel anything other than being happy, something's wrong. And it's like, no, that's life. And in life, sometimes you have a shitty day and sometimes you don't feel. And so it's like, oh, uh, I must have PTSD. I'm angry today. It's like, no, like being angry is just like, you know, you get cut off in traffic. You, you The person cuts you in the coffee shop line. It's like, that's not PTSD. That's just you having a normal response to whatever's kind of going on. And so we got to normalize first and foremost that, uh, feelings other than happiness. And so that when I'm a routine casualty and I'm having a feeling other than happiness, I say, okay, hey, look, you're just having a little bit of a funky day. It's no problem. Like we'll, we'll, we'll get through it tomorrow, you know? Um, okay, but maybe I'm a priority casualty and maybe I'm having a couple bad days or maybe I can't really kind of shake this thing that I'm going through. And it's like, okay, that's when I talk to my buddy. 
I said, Hey buddy, I got an issue. And, uh, and here's what I'm going through. And then maybe just by talking through that experience with my buddy and my buddy who isn't listening to respond, my buddy, who's somebody I, I trust my buddy who I can be vulnerable with my buddy, who's empathetic, who's actively listening. Here's my story. And often it's just by sharing that story with someone, I start to feel better, you know? And, and so my, my load is like by that. And then sometimes I am an urgent casualty. Sometimes I, I've tried to shake it off. Sometimes I talk to a buddy about it and maybe I have an actual real something seriously going on. And so just like if I got a sucking chest wound, I wouldn't say like, oh, I can probably treat this gunshot wound to the chest like it's no i i, I went to uh C. I went to combat lifesaver i i got the sucking i could no and, and just like if i had a sucking chest wound i wouldn't say hey buddy um i'm probably gonna die in the next 60 minutes but you're my buddy you can probably just uh hook me up here no if i have a sucking chest wound what do i where do i want to go i want to go to the fucking doctor like i want to go to the surgeon that that knows how to treat sucking chest wounds. I want to get to a hospital. I want to get to at a higher echelon of care when I've got. And so sometimes we've got that invisible wound. That's a sucking chest wound. And rather than get to the doctor who's trained to treat that, we're like, well, maybe I can like just uh, walk this one off. It's like, no motherfucker, you got a sucking chest wound. Like you need to get to the doctor that treats that shit, you know? And so um, I, I think, uh, and, and the idea is like, well, you're, you're either you're you're too prideful or or whatever and you're like i'll just i'll just keep uh, I'll, I'll i'll just keep pushing and what you're doing is like that blood that you're spilling uh it, it it's not contained you know you start to have collateral damage when when you when you don't go to that higher echelon of help it's not you're not a self-contained entity because the people who love you and the people around you start to suffer uh, because you because you won't go get the healing and, and the help that you need, and uh, and and so all that to say is I I started this kill zone project in grad school. I started to write about it, how we can be more resilient, how we can start to find better pathways towards recovery, and um, and then what I what I wanted to do is I wanted to go. Um, talk about this publicly and so i started to go to veteran open mic nights and so there's coffee shops around dc and, and bars around dc that had you know these, these opportunities for open mic nights and so what i found is that when you writing is one way but when you actually speak something it's a whole nother experience and so the first time i shared my story publicly i was like it felt like um let's just say like I was talking and then all of a sudden my throat was getting a little bit tight. I was like, Oh, uh, uh, you know, like, like, and I was like, wait, what's going on? You've written about this a bunch and now you're talking about it. You're getting all kind of choked up about it. What's the deal here? That, and that lump. Uh, Every, yeah. I think everybody knows that lump in your throat mm -hmm. feeling. And, um, I would say that, uh, when you, when you add your voice to your story, it's, it's, it's different and it's powerful. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think it was through writing and, and kind of speaking my story out loud is really where uh, I started to kind of make some progress and figure some things out about my own journey and my own challenges and issues. You mentioned something earlier about how the military as an organization 
hasn't given enough focus towards like invisible wounds. I think that that would certainly have been my experience, or at least with the people that I encountered while in the service, a lot of people struggling with mental issues and and needing to see somebody about something, maybe in one of those more urgent situations where literally life is on the line, but there's not the initiative can't be taken for fear of like repercussions. Um, People worried about like maybe losing security clearance, worrying about all of the the side effects that come from from seeking help uh, for mental issues in the military. Has that been your experience? What do you think about that? And what do you think is the solution to like a big problem like that? Yeah, I I think, you know, uh, whether it was World War II vets or Vietnam vets or maybe even the 90s or early 2000s, there was the idea of like, you know, just be a man, suck it up. And you can't talk about that. And we don't, and, and you know, you're a soldier, soldier on or whatever. And so I think uh, the pendulum was way, way off in the wrong direction. What I noticed is a massive pendulum swing though, uh, throughout my time of service where it started to almost feel like um, we were being treated like children or like a baby where it was like, it was, it was, um, I came back from my second deployment and I was, I was just a one, one person, uh, on a, an advisor tour. And so when I, when I redeployed back to the States, I flew back with a, a headquarters element from like, it's called the MEF, which is like the highest level of like, think of a division, like brigade division. The MEF is like, And I was back with the MEF headquarters and I was in their like one week transition course back into America. And the chaplain was like, hey, um, you all have been damaged. You all have been hurt. And and, it was kind of almost prescribing that we were messed up. And I was like, "Ah, I mean, the majority of the people on this team had Wi-Fi and ice cream and, you know, like uh, in a coffee shop. I don't know if like, they've been seriously damaged from this deployment. Not to say that being deployed wasn't hard. Of course it's hard. You're not with your family. You're not with your friends. I don't think me, the grunt, the combat vet is only, only is the only person that has a challenging deployment. It's not to say that uh, those people didn't have real challenges while they were deployed and had to make real sacrifices. It's just to say like, let's not prescribe them PTSD. Let's not prescribe them that, that are, like they're damaged. And there was this conversation. I was listening to these, I was, I was a captain. I listened to these two lieutenants from the, the, the headquarters team. And the guy's like, um, yeah, man, uh, I went to the barber shop the other day and it was packed and, you, and it was like the deli line. You had to take a number, you know, and uh, you had to take a ticket before you, you get called up. And he's like, someone, uh, someone whose ticket was after me went and sat in my chair when I was supposed to be the next one up and I almost lost it. And I, and I almost snapped, dude. I just think I'm having a hard, I'm like, could it be that that would have pissed you off no matter what the context or circumstances are, had you not deployed, you know? So the idea that you're pissed that this person cut you off, it's like, no, that's just, that's just an inconsiderate asshole. And you're pissed off about it. It's not (laughs) combat related, you know? Um, So I think, uh, we are very sensitive to it and now sometimes overly sensitive to it. Whereas when I was a company commander, I had 180 Marines when I was company commander. If someone said, oh, we're going on a 15 mile hike tomorrow, I suck at hiking. And I know my sergeant is gonna crush my soul. 
uh, because I'm going to fall out of the hike. They could just say, uh, excuse me, I'm sad. And then I was like, oh, ceasefire. Ceasefire, this guy's sad. Like, send him out. Can't, talk, can't touch him, can't talk to him. And it's like, well, surely that's, uh, that's not the answer either. And so, you know, what can we do better? It's, it's, we don't want to coddle, right? We don't want to coddle. I feel like now there's a lot of coddling. So we don't want to coddle. And we also don't want to say, hey, just suck it up. Don't be a bitch, you know? Like, and so there's probably somewhere in the middle where it's like, hey, if you're having a real issue, there's no drama. There's no stigma. Go, go get, just like, again, if I came into my command and my, I, I had a, a compound fracture, my bone was sticking through my arm, you know, they wouldn't say, uh, you're being a bitch about this. Just, you know, just, they would say like, Hey dude, you, your bone is sticking out of your arm. You got to go to the doctor, you know? And so like change, just, change your socks and take yeah. some Motrin. <laughs> you're a Marine, rub some dirt on it. You'll be fine. And, 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 and so we just have to have to have that same kind of uh, acceptance that, Hey, like, yeah, you, you, you've got this injury, uh, go, go get it treated. And so in terms of, um, people being worried that they might lose their clearance, et cetera. I, 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 I can understand that. Um, I think we're in a weird place where we're trying to be better, uh, but the ways that we're trying to be better aren't always more helpful. And I don't know the exact solution for it, you know, in the military context, besides just uh, treating it like any other kind of injury and allowing people the time and space that they need to heal and recover from it. So you mentioned that, like, maybe that was just a, a fictitious example that you gave, but as somebody being in charge of lots of Marines going into, like, you know, on deployment, even at home exercises and whatnot, is that something that you experience people, um, a deliberate use, a deliberate misuse of that to, to get out of things? Yeah. So, I mean, you used to have to, to get out, you used to have to smoke weed, you know, if you wanted to get out, you had to pop hot on your piss test, you know, but then now you're going to get a dishonorable discharge or whatever. And now uh, it's like, I've made a mistake. Uh, I played call of duty and I thought this was going to be like call of duty. And you just kind of, it was just cool. And you got to carry a gun and, and post pictures on Instagram. And it's like, no, actually you have to go do these really shitty hard things. And, uh, and there are people that take this really seriously because they understand it's a life or death profession. And uh, I was just trying to have this kind of cool whatever. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think you will definitely find some malingerers who will exploit the system as it currently is set up. And it's not, I'm not saying that it's like a, an epidemic. I'm not saying that um, it's the norm, but I do think that um, I was also at the school of infantry and you get all these people in their entry level training and, and they, and, and I found that they also were using this uh, kind of as an out to say, Hey, uh, I have PTSD from my drill instructor from when he yelled at me and I'm like, uh, do you uh, really like, uh, okay, but so, you know, I'm not the clinical psychologist. I'm not going to get into it. Right. But I, I know that um, it, it's caused me some issues uh, as a commander with, with this over, I think, oversensitivity. And so again, uh, we just got to find the right balance of acknowledging that some people are going through stuff 
and not attaching any stigma to that and allowing them to, to get the help and allowing them to get the help that they need uh, without starting to coddle uh, folks. One last question on, on that, and then we can kind of move on. Have you ever like been in the hot seat as a, a leader for something like that or, or seen repercussions? I don't know if you can talk about that, but uh, had something come back on you for, for somebody maybe deliberately misusing that? Not deliberately misusing the um, mental health thing, but uh, I've, I've been, I'm probably the most investigated company commander you ever meet. And uh, I am relentless about my preparation for combat and um, I'm pretty ruthless. And I think I am colored by my experiences. Uh, I had 19 casualties in my platoon of 35. You know, uh, I know that there, there's no do-overs in combat. There's no, you don't respawn. You know, when you're dead, you're dead forever. And when you lose a limb, you've lost your limb. And so I find it that it's my duty and my obligation to prepare my Marines and sailors to fight and win, to bring as many of them home as possible in a very unforgiving environment. And so I'm psychotic about that. I understand that I am belt fed and very aggressive. And, and so uh, I don't have a lot of tolerance for weakness. And uh, this is the wrong line of work if you don't bring your weak shit around here. Now, I don't view asking for help because you're going through something mentally as weakness. I view that that that's that's a strength. That if you, if you have, uh, it, if you're able to be vulnerable like that and, and address your need to try to get yourself back and fit for full duty uh, because you want to be in the fight, you want to have your head in the right place. Like I view that as a strength. Um, but I definitely had a couple times where Marines attempted to malinger in one way or the other, not through mental health. And again, the mental health stuff, it's just like hands off. You can't touch it. You can't mess with it. It's like, go to the, go to the wizard, get the help. Maybe you're exploiting the system, maybe you're not, but I know that uh, I'm not going to fuck with that. Uh, but a couple of times where maybe I felt like a Marine was uh, trying to be a little bit soft, uh, whether that was on a hike or uh, I, I, I have a couple of stories that uh, that led to investigations that uh, where I felt like somebody was, was trying to be a little bit soft and I didn't have any time for that shit. And then I got maybe a little bit of trouble. What if it, uh, I don't know how, again, I don't know how much you can share or want to share, but like, what does getting in trouble look like at, um, I don't know what rank you you held at the time, but what does that look like? Yeah. So, the, I mean, there's two instances. Uh, they're not the only two times that I got investigated as a coming commander, but the two that, so, you know, you call it a command investigation and, um, it's stressful when, 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 when an investigation happens, people start poking around in all your shit. You know, they're looking under every rock, they're reading through your emails or checking the log books. And it's never, I always felt that I had the moral high ground or whatever I was doing. I always felt that whatever I, I did, whatever decisions I was making were for the betterment of the organization as a whole. And so I always believed I had pure intentions. Um, and so I, I wasn't necessarily afraid 
uh, that someone would find anything out, but it's still an uncomfortable place to be when you have an investigating officer looking in and do an interview with all, you got 150 Marines and they're doing an interview with all these Marines and someone's having a bad day and they're pissed off at you. It's like, what could they say? You know? And so it's an uncomfortable situation. And, and I had a Marine um, who was UA. He was in Lake Havasu and he was too drunk and he missed uh, rifle range. And the next day, he, where, were you, where were you stationed at at the time? How far away is is that a long ways? Twenty nine Palms. It's a couple hours uh, outside okay. of Twenty Nine Palms. So we're not like five states away or anything. No, but it was just Monday morning. He was supposed to go to the range, and he didn't make it back from Havasu in time. Uh, the next day, the, the the squad went out on a run. I had this one great sergeant, Sergeant Smith, uh, and the Marines still hung over and falling out of the run, so he kicking his ass to the front and keep saying get to the front and not like night not nice language right and then they go to the gym and so now they're at the gym at 7 a.m where everybody in the regiment's at the gym you know it's not like this didn't happen behind closed doors at 2 a.m with a gas mask and you know any of the type of bullshit it's it, it, at the gym and this hungover individual can't do a squat you know so he says okay hold this medicine ball and maybe that'll help you get deeper in your squat because you're half-assing these squats you know and so the next day i had a marine not that marine but one of his buddies saying that he wanted to request mass because he felt like his friend had been hazed and i said okay like of course if you want to request mass i you're you are afforded that opportunity to request mass if you're making a hazing allegation you don't have to request mass to make a hazing allegation. You could just make the hazing allegation and we'll, we'll investigate it. But let's talk about hazing and what happened. And then, so we talked about it. And at the end of it, I said, you know, here's what hazing, here's the definition of hazing. Uh, do you still think that that Marine was hazed? And the Marine said, no. And, and I said, okay. And do you think you do still intend or, or desire to request mass? No. Okay. So I had this first Sergeant who was, a PFC lover, right? He loved the PFCs. He, he emasculated my NCOs at every corner. And I was talking to him. I said, hey, first of all, the Marines don't understand what hazing is. You know, I had this Marine in here making a hazing allegation. He just didn't know what hazing is. I want you to talk to the company about what hazing is. And he's like, oh, sir, well, that, if you have any hazing allegations, you got to report that to hire. I'm like, I don't have a hazing allegation because he left my office and said he doesn't have any allegation of hazing. He's like, well, he came in the office with a hazing allegation. So it's a hazing allegation. I'm like, first aren't it's over. It's done. We're not bringing this up either way. A couple of days later, he told the command behind my back that I was trying to bury a hazing allegation. Uh, so that was, uh, uncomfortable. Uh, so I, and then I, uh, investigation happened. Uh, I got a non punitive letter of caution. Um, in Australia, I had a Marine get poked in the eye from a, a, a radio antenna. He was walking around in the dark and got poked in the eye by the antenna. And, um, oh boy, here we go. And, <laughs> and this wasn't a great Marine to begin with. Uh, and he said, I sent him to the doctor. Uh, he said, I can't see. So I sent him to the corpsman. The corpsman sent him to the medical officer. He was evaluated by the medical officer. Medical officer said, you got poked in the eye, you're cleared to train. Came back to me and we're doing a, like a 40 K because in Australia, it was absolutely psychotic how much we walked and we were doing a 40 K and he's like, I, I can't hike. I, I got poked in the eye. I'm like, how are your feet? And 
are your feet okay? And I'm like, okay, then you're walking. And uh, so I made this Marine hike. When we got out of the field, he said, you know, I still can't see. I was like, okay. So I sent him to the, we sent him to uh, an ophthalmologist and the ophthalmologist said, you got post in the eye. And so then we came back. I said, okay, you're going back to train. And so uh, ultimately this Marine did request mass and said that, you know, um, he's going to be blind because I am insensitive to, and I keep making him train. And, uh, and one investigating officer came out and like quickly did the investigation and said, yeah, there's nothing here. Well, the Marine requested mass again and said that that investigation was a sham. And so then I had this guy who was a reservist, he's a major and he, he was a detective, like in his civilian job, he was a detective. And so he brings me to the PMO like jail and like sits me in the room next to the prison and like hits the tape recorder and it's like cross-examining me on this. And I'm like, you know, and, and he's doing that with my sergeants and all. And so it's, 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 a uh, it was really uncomfortable. Um, you know, again, I got cleared. It was whatever, but um, yeah, so I, I, well, I never had any issues, uh, regarding mental health. I did definitely have some, uh, other issues that were not pleasant. Uh, it really sounds like they can hold your feet to the fire real quick. And I, I think in a lot of ways there does need to be, there's gotta be checks and balances. I mean, that you can't just have people making allegations all the time for, for no reason, but at the same time, uh, like the, the military does have a strong history of hazing like that. That's something that has happened and, and exists. So I don't know what the answer is. That is a problem for somebody much smarter than I am. That's for sure. I want to switch up to the kind of transition into PB Abate and kind of that whole thing. So can you give us kind of the, the down and dirty about that, how that started, what's, what that is. Sure. So, um, in April, 2020, uh, one of my Marines, Corporal Justin McLeod, um, it's not clear. I, I don't think it was quite suicide, but I think he, he overdosed and, um, McLeod had enlisted out of high school. He had a D1 college baseball scholarship, but he wanted to go fight first country. And so he went to Iraq, then did a MU deployment. And then I came in to be a platoon commander in 2009. And at the, right before we deployed, he had had a kid, Desmond, and he said, hey, um, I was going to extend for the deployment, but now I think I'm going to EAS. And I said, okay, well, you're my best shot in the platoon. You're our, our land nav guy. Um, you're one of my best team leaders. Um, maybe, you know, do what's best for your family, but maybe you talk to your wife again about it. And he goes back and he comes and talks to his wife and he comes back and says, you know, sir, you're my family too. I'm going to extend. Well, two months later, um, McLeod uh, is blown up by an IED. I'm on the patrol. I come up. One of my Marines hands me McLeod's fingers. Um, I put those in my cargo pocket. It was a very weird uh, situation. And then once I got the security perimeter set, once I got the uh, medevac called in, uh, I start. I would always take, when you have an amputee, got you know five or six people usually trying to treat the amputee and so um i i took one of the i would always take one of the junior marines off and say hey go hold security let me get my hands in these guts and so 
uh, as I'm patching up, I'm basically packing meat. You know, you're holding meat to the bone while someone wraps around your hands. And so um, initially when McLeod was hit, he was saying like, I want a cigarette, fuck you to the Taliban. And he, But as throughout, while we were waiting for the, the medevac, it took a little while, you could see that he was starting to weaken. Um, and uh, I had one of the hardest conversations I ever had in, in that I, I feel responsible that this Marine extended and, uh, and I'm, and I know he's got a baby boy at home and I'm saying, Hey, um, you know, you got to stay with us. You got to stay, you get, you, you're going to play baseball with your son someday. You know, you're going to, you're going to coach his little league team. And I'm saying this to a guy who's a triple amputee, knowing that uh, his baseball career is probably done and he probably won't be doing these things. And, but um, I'm trying to help him find the will to live again. And uh, he did, he grabbed hold of that will to live, um, stayed in the fight, but he was, he was still fighting that fight for the next 10 years. You know, um, he was in and out of surgeries, constantly on heavy medications and, so I lost McLeod and that was really tough because um, the time I had my own baby daughter and, and, and like I said, when you, when you're in combat, you're in the yellow, when you're in combat, I know that people are going to try to hurt me today. Uh, and I'm prepared for that. But when you, I put my daughter to bed and I came back and I had a message from one of my Marines and said, Hey, sir, um, can you give me a call? And it's like 10 o'clock on a Friday. That I'm not, I mean, I'm not in a, I'm, I'm in a vulnerable spot and uh, getting that, getting that ambush was um, pretty tough. And within a couple of weeks, I had two more Marines kill themselves. And I just said, you know, uh, from when I was a company commander. And so I said, what, what is going on here? It wasn't the first time I had somebody kill themselves, but so I, I started to read through all the VA reports and I said, what's the problem? And, and what I found through these VA reports is that the leading proximal cause of veteran suicide were feelings of disconnectedness and isolation. And I also found that 80% of veteran suicides were non-combat and that there was no correlation between combat and suicide. And so I said, okay, so if we know it's people who are feeling disconnected and isolated who are killing themselves, uh, what resources are out there that are putting people in community, that are getting people connected? And not just combat veterans, but everybody who served. And it, and it made a lot of sense to me that everybody who served needs that space because let's say you're on a, um, a C-130 or let's say you're on a helicopter crew, you know, or let's say you're on a submarine, let's say you're on a ship or you're in the engine room. In all those places, you're in close community, closely connected to, to a, 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 a fire team or a squad where each of you is depending on each other for something that you really believe is important. Like keeping uh, a destroyer moving in the Pacific ocean. If you're in the engine room on a Navy ship, it's like, it, that's important. You know, keeping that aircraft in the air, if you're a maintainer, like that's important. And there's life or death consequences with that. And everybody in your team, if it, if it came to world war three, uh, everybody in that team would die for, the person to the left and right, you know, that's an incommunicable experience where everybody signed a check in the military. And so the idea that only the grunt or only the special forces have that need to community, I, I thought, you know, it, that's not what the data suggests. And, and, and when you think about it like that, it, it would make sense that 
kind of anybody might have a uh, struggle with that when, when, when they start to miss that um, as a transition. And so I, um, I started to look, I was hoping to find an organization that was inclusive to everybody that would put everybody in communities. Okay. So if, if the reason that they're killing themselves is because they feel isolated and disconnected, hopefully there's an organization that says, Hey, if you serve, you can join our community. And, and what I found is that 99% of the resources out there were dedicated to 1% of the community. And that community was your combat veterans, your, your special forces and your, and your combat wounded. That was really encouraging to me that our nation has rallied around the people who have sacrificed the most. That was encouraging. I'm grateful that we live in a country that so many people have committed to helping the people who, who, who sacrificed the most. But I said, why does it seem like that's where we started and ended? And isn't there enough space out there? Isn't there, isn't, can't, can't we find some room to, to be a little bit more welcoming and inclusive to kind of everybody who's raised the right hand? And so, um, I said, you know, uh, I don't see it. I don't, I don't, I did all my research. I said, I don't see an, an organization or community out there that's going to welcome everybody. And so I said, well, I'm going to go get a space, a physical space. I wanted to be a physical space uh, where anybody who served, anybody who's raised the right hand can come out to and, and, and get that connection and, and find that community. And so I got a 350 acre ranch out in Montana, Thompson Falls, about an hour and 45 minutes outside of Missoula. And, um, and we called it patrol base Abate and, and the idea is uh, a patrol base, again, like I talked about, is a place that you can rest and refit. A patrol base is a place that you can take off your gear, be vulnerable around the campfire and make those kind of connections. And the idea is that you rest, refit, you get that tribe uh, so that you can get back outside the wire. You know, a, a patrol base is a temporary, it's a temporary, it's not, you don't stay there. You got to get back out on the patrol life. You got to get back in your communities and to your families and continue to serve. You know, we're men and women of service. And so you need it. You need you need a, uh, a tribe. You need to and, and you need a purpose. And so the purpose is continue to live life of service and sacrifice. And so uh, I, I named it after my sniper, Sergeant Matt Abate, who's killed on December 2nd, Navy cross recipient. Uh, he's the greatest warrior I've ever met. And, 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 and I wanted to continue to to. Uh, his, keep his legacy alive and I found that that no one I couldn't think of anyone um, more that I would want to kind of keep telling and sharing that story and so uh, the idea is that uh, you know you're going to come out and it's not my patrol base right it's your patrol base it's it's anybody who serves patrol base so there's physical dirt there's an actual place that every veteran every active duty every reservist every national guard can say I have a space where there's dirt and it's real and I belong and I'm welcome there. And I don't no additional qualifiers. And so the idea is like what I kept finding is that all the services that were out there said, you gotta check this box. You gotta check, you gotta be disabled enough. You gotta have a disorder. You gotta have just try to commit suicide. You gotta have just uh, you know, um had have an overdose. You gotta be, you gotta be the guy who killed Osama bin Laden, you know. And so I wanted to say, hey, uh, what if um what if we what if we create a place where you, that instead of being intentionally exclusive, intended, let's create a space that instead of a place that says you don't rate, you don't rate my services, you don't rate to be. Said, what if I created a place that said, hey, you raise your right hand, come on in, and you know, as a guy who can check a lot of those boxes, I don't want to be narrowly defined. 
by by my wounds, by a disorder, by one of my disabilities. I don't want to, I, I want to say, hey, I'm Tom. And I recognize the value of connection and community, period. You know, and so uh and and I and and I thought like let's get left a bang. All these all these resources exist for for people who have already transitioned, who are in a moment of crisis. What if we uh are more take a preemptive or proactive approach and say, hey, you're on active duty. Whether you transition next year or in, or in 20 years, at some point, there's going to be this identity crisis. And, and so all the VA data suggests that in the first year of transition, identity crisis happens, and that's when the most kind of stress happens in that first year of transition. And so what if we were able to get you in community and get you connected before that, a little prehab, you know? And so uh, that way, when you go through that, that identity crisis, you can say, oh, I, someone has my flank. You know, I've got someone watching my six. I, I, I'm in this. I'm in this fire team, right? And and so, and then come out to our patrol base. We're gonna do whatever you're into. You know, we did last year. We did a hunting uh, club retreat. We did a, a fight club for for jujitsu and MMA. We did a, a strength club for people who are into lifting weights. We did a book club, and we did a music club. And we're gonna continue to expand that. So come do the thing that you're already into. So you've got a common interest there, and then you've got a common narrative of other veterans. So we all speak veteran, you know, so it's, it's, it's these people that you can, can trust. It's the people who are into the thing that you do come do our programming, get around the fireside, uh, get connected. You're going to do some, you're going to do some work at the patrol base because we're, we want you to work at the patrol base because this isn't a retreat. Like you're going to Cancun where you put cucumbers on your eyes and you just drink a pina colada. This is a, this is a, this is, we're going to put you back on a working party and get you sweating again. And so, you know, the idea is you improve the position while improving yourself, you know, lead the patrol base better than you found it. And you're going to leave yourself better than you found it. And then get back and continue to be a man or woman of service. And so then we have 43 local chapters right now. So we've got patrol base of Botic, Boston, New York, Chicago, Carolina, Southern California, Utah, you know? And so the idea is that um, you can sustain that community, there's an enduring community where you're actually physically located. And those uh, local chapters are predicated on, there's a social component. So sometimes you go for a hike with your local chapter. Sometimes you go watch the, the UFC fight with your local chapter at Buffalo Wild Wings. But then, you know, once a quarter, let's go out and do a service project in our community. And, and to me, I'm a big narrative guy. I'm an English person, right? And so I think about narratives. And I thought this narrative around veterans who are... <laughs> entitled, damaged, broken, victims, special. This is not This is not the narrative that I'm not satisfied with the way that the media uh, or, or society or culture is kind of discussing what it means to be a, a veteran. Too often that is a veteran. People think of veteran and they think unstable, like ticking time bomb, guy with a cardboard sign who is asking for change on the side of the road. Like that's not, that's not the veterans I know. And so let's challenge that narrative and let's elevate it and let's be men and women of who continue to serve and address the greatest needs in our community. So whether you're going to the soup kitchen or the women's shelter, or you're going to pick up trash on the beach outside of Camp Pendleton, like let's demonstrate that not, we're not victims, we're warriors and we're going to continue and we're people of continued service. And so go serve in your home, go serve in your community, uh, and walk point, find a place to walk point again. And, and, to, and, and so that's what we provide with our, our local chapters. And that's that kind of continued purpose. And so we've equipped you with the fire team, we've equipped you with a tribe and community. 
and so that you that and, and now we're going to continue to find ways to feel purposeful and so you know you're a podcast that talks about uh transition and i think um too often there's a failure to adapt there's a you know at entry-level training you can you can rate a, a, a discharge for failure to adapt meaning you you weren't able to uh socially um adapt to a military environment well how do we what do we what do we do we indoctrinate you we inculcate this kind of uh teamwork selfless mentality and then there's a failure to adapt that occurs when you transition out of the service and so uh what what why is there that failure to adapt and one it's because you are holding too tightly to that um your, your whole identity has become who you were as a marine soldier sailor or airman so that's we, we kind of addressed that I think at the beginning of the podcast, but also I think of like the hero's journey. So Joseph Campbell um, kind of talked; he's, he's a uh, wrote extensively on this uh, concept of the hero's journey, and that means that uh, in your life there'll be a call to action, and then you answer that call to action, and then you got to go, you got to leave where you're at, you got to leave your home, you got to go slay a dragon, you got to conquer your challenges, and then there's a homecoming. And, and so the, 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 the hero has a call to action, they slay the dragon, and then they come home. And so, you know, where does this archetype start? It starts in the Iliad and the Odyssey, you know, it starts with Homer, and, and he kind of tells us the first stories of the, the hero's journey. But you can look at, um, whether you look at, uh, you can look at the Bible, where there's, where there's consistent hero's journeys throughout the Bible. You can look at Star Wars, where Luke gets the call to action. You can look anywhere in, in, in popular culture to find examples of, of the hero's journey. Um, and so what, what we're finding is that it's so it's the homecoming part is so problematic with the veterans community. And why is that? Uh, it's because when they return home, they forget what made that service so meaningful. And that's that they, uh, found something to feel sacrificial. They found something to continue to serve. And so it, you lose yourself in service to others. And so you just have to find that thing. And, I, and, and, and so for a lot of people, that thing is now PB Abate, but you got to find that thing that calls you back to serve. And so uh, you can work whatever your job is, and maybe your job is an accountant, and it maybe it doesn't, it isn't like that rewarding in that you, you're feeling like you're serving. But there are so many opportunities in life, there's so much need out there in the world that there's, there's a way uh, for you to find that call to action again and continue to serve. And so you've got to get outside yourself. You've got to get back into what, what felt so meaningful and so rewarding. It's not going to be the same, you know, when you were keeping aircraft in the air or a, a destroyer running, like, okay, I understand that it's not exactly congruent. So you, you have to maybe adjust a little bit there, but the idea is just to get back into service and sacrifice because you are a man or woman of service and sacrifice. So continue your hero's journey. It's not the hero's journey isn't a, isn't just a linear thing where it's like I went I got I went to boot camp I served I came home and it's like no it starts right back again you know so find that next thing where you're, where you're called where you serve and 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 that needs to be a loop it has to keep happening um, and that will keep you fulfilled or sustained um, and so much of I think what we find. The, the disillusionment or the the kind of mental health issues is that uh, we've forgotten that we're men or women of service and and we and, and that's what's absent in our life and that's what we're struggling with. 
that's quite a powerful mission that you're serving uh, that hits uh, so many important points there. When did you start PB Abate? Um, and how many retreats have you had? How many people do you have involved with that? Yeah, so we launched just over a year ago. Um, and in April 2021, we had our first retreat out there in Thompson Falls, Montana. And it's important to know that our, our retreats are free of cost. Um, and so we're going to fly you out. We're going to pick you up. We're going to feed you. It's all with the idea of accessibility. Because if, let's say, uh, okay, I, I would go to your retreat, but I, I just can't afford it. Or I would go to your retreat, but you're not doing the thing that I'm into. And that's why we offer such a, like, a different variety of retreats, because we want to make it so that everybody feels like uh, they have access and, that, they're, and that, they, that there's a seat at our table for them. And what I, one of the biggest challenges that I've been fighting is that so many veterans are, uh, believe this lie in that uh, their service doesn't matter because they didn't go to combat or they didn't do the, this thing. Or they, and so I think social media has really distorted and polluted the way that we think about service because, you know, what are the most popular social media accounts? They're all the special forces type things and they're guys carrying scar scars with suppressors and have four night vision goggles and they're jumping. And it's like, and so we've, we've kind of constructed this false binary that service means you're, you're uh, a, a Navy SEAL. Like that's not what service means. Service means that like you answered a call and, and, and you gave something uh, to something greater than yourself, you know? And so that to me is, is service. So we, we, I've seen a, a redefining of what it means to serve and people are buying into this myth of, of what service means. And, 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 and so, what people would tell me is like, I'm just a, or I was just a, and, and, I, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm combating this idea of just. And it's like, you weren't just a, a Motor T Marine or soldier. You know, you weren't just a, a maintainer on an aircraft. You weren't just a supply clerk. Like that shouldn't matter. You know, you raised your right hand, you signed a check and you went and served your country. You're not special. You're not entitled to anything, but service matters. And so get rid of this idea of I was just and just and, and, and come and we've got a tribe and we want you just how you are. You're welcome. Come on in. And so, yeah, we ran uh, we ran the five retreats in Thompson Falls. Uh, we ran a retreat with a partner organization out in Den uh, Boulder um, in December. So I think six big events that we ran. Um, but you know, again, we want to meet people where they're at. So let's say your thing is surfing. Well, there's not a whole lot of surfing in Thompson Falls, Montana, but we do have a chapter in Southern California. And so what we did is we brought a bunch of folks out to, to, to surf out in Southern California. You know, uh, our, our gun club is going to meet in October out at a range in Arizona, because there's a, there's a, there's a, a an organization who's offering to let, allow us to use the range. So we're going to keep finding ways to, um, support your interests, where you're at, and, and, and find a way to get you connected. Because that's it's all about finding ways to get veterans connected and, and back in a community. And so um, this year, I think we'll run probably 10, 11 uh, retreats or events. Um, and uh, every every weekend, like this weekend, uh, PB Bate, North Carolina, met at Buffalo Wild Wings. They went and watched UFC fight. Uh, PB Abate Salt Lake City met last weekend and they all went on a hike and did some archery stuff, you know? So every weekend around the country, our local chapters are active and doing stuff. And then 
we're going to continue to kind of run our big programming out of our headquarters in Montana and then find other ways to, to support folks. Like, um, so let's say you're into golf, you know, we might not bring you to the mountain to golf, but I'll find a way to support the PB about the golf community and, and, and we'll get you somewhere to, to do the thing that you're into with the people that you care about. And, and so long as that we find that uh, connection, in those communities for, for me. That is, that's such a cool, that's, that's so freaking cool. Um, how many, yeah, I, it, I need to look into that. Cause that that's freaking awesome. Um, when you first were starting it, was this just your idea? I mean, how many people were involved in, in starting it and kind of like getting it up? Because it sounds like it's gone from like zero to a hundred really, really quick. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's it has grown and scaled. I, I mean, we're, we're the fastest growing better service better service organization in the country. And and why is that? Because there's a demand for a tribe. You know, people. Mm-hmm. It it is not. You know, when you look at people's needs, not what people desire, what people need. People need to feel in community and in, in a tribe. And I would say that that's universal to just human beings. And I would say it's intensified by humans who serve. So once you've been in this in this bond in a squad or on a team with a bunch of, with this incommunicable experience where everyone to your left or right said, I would die for you. If, if I think that, that desire for connection, once you've had such a pure and strong connection, I think it's just intensified. So of course, people who are out of uniform are missing that thing. And so, uh, yes, there's been a significant demand and, and because we're inclusive and there's 20 million veterans out there and we say, Hey, you're all welcome. You know, you're on active duty, you're welcome. You're national guard, you're welcome. Reservist, you're welcome. And so, and 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 we're gonna do the thing that you're into. And so it's like, not only are you welcome, but it's not like the Tom Schumann club where I like to read and walk around in nature. You know, those are the two things that like are my ho- my hobbies. I didn't make an organization where that's the only two things we do. I say, if, if, and if we're not doing the thing that you're into, if you're into Frisbee or hacky sack, I don't care, like lead it lead the hacky sack club, lead the Frisbee club. And we'll find a way to bring you out to Montana to do the thing that you're into, you know, walk point, fill the sandbag. That's a challenge. Like it's, it's our patrol base. It's not my patrol base. And so, um, what was the other part of the question? Oh, was no. it just my <laughs> idea? Was it just my idea? So yeah. I mean, and like how many people were involved in, in like sure. launching it? Yeah. So, I mean, initially it, I, it was, I, it was a challenge to myself. Are you a leader? And you see a gap, you see a problem, you're going to pass it off to somebody else. And, and again, my hope was that there was an organization that was inclusive, that did feel accessible to everybody. And I would just say, hey, how can I fill a sandbag within your organization? What I found is that, no, all these other organizations were saying, you don't rate, you're not special enough. And so I said, well, if you're a leader, lead. You, you, you've defined the problem, right? So I started by trying to define the problem. And then I and then I thought, okay, what's the solution? And then I thought of, well, we're going to do patrol based abate. Uh, here's a challenge: I don't know anything about nonprofits. I don't know anything about starting a business. I don't know, you know, I'm a grunt. I don't know. I know how to lead and kind of attack objectives, uh, accomplish missions that are challenging, but I don't know anything about starting a business. But I do know something, and that is that the reason I've been successful in my career. The reason I've been able to uh, attack objectives in, in these missions and be, be successful in that is that uh, I know how to build a team and I know the value of a team. 
I know the value of attacking something as a squad or as a platoon or as a company. And that when you, and, and the amount of and the strength that comes in and attacking a problem as, as a collective. And so uh, the first person I called was my squad leader, Sergeant Trey Humphrey, who he and I were wounded together on November 9th. He lost his leg um, and he had, he had some nonprofit experience and he's just a guy who I knew that has, can accomplish any mission. And so I said, well, if I'm going to start this ambitious mission, I'm going to go to the guy who I know who's accomplished every mission I've ever given him and who has some expertise in the, in, in the not. And then I called a, a, a gold star also on, also on November 9th, Robert Kelly was killed in action in 2010 and, and, and his sister, uh, Kate Kelly, now Kate Fox, uh, she had worked in nonprofit space for a long time. And so I, I called her just for her nonprofit experience and expertise. And so those were the first two phone calls I made. And I pitched my idea and I and and and, and got them on board uh, to kind of support the mission. And then I, for hundreds of hours, hundreds of hours, by the way, I'm teaching at the Naval Academy. I got a shit ton of kids. For hundreds of hours, I'm calling experts how to start a business, how to run a website, how to do uh, accounting management for donations, how to, what insurance, I don't know how to do insurance, you know, sure. uh, what are the legal requirements here? And so I'm calling people and just listening and taking note after note and filling up notebook after notebook of just saying, hey, uh, you, you walk this path, uh, you know how to run a business, you know how to run a nonprofit, you know, and so would you be willing to just share your knowledge with me? And so, yeah, I made hundreds of phone calls. I spent hundreds of hours on the phone, just listening, taking notes and, and learning about the nonprofit space and, and, and how to run a business. Uh, that was extremely labor intensive. Um, but, and, and, and every time I got to give you a pitch, you know, every time I got to get you hooked as to why you should care or support or offer me your advice, and the thing about patrol base abate that makes that a little bit more uh, nuanced or, or challenging is that if I called you and I said, hey, we're the uh, disabled veterans charity. Hey, we're the veteran, we're the charity for paralyzed veterans. Hey, we're the charity for the Navy SEALs. It's like, oh, well, naturally you're going to feel inclined to say, like, I want to give you $5 or I want to give you my time because it's, it's so easy to see that, you know, there's a, I talked to the guy who, who runs the organization Stop Soldier Suicide. What a great organization. What a great mission to stop soldier suicide. But when he makes a phone call to someone and his organization is titled Stop Soldier Suicide, people are like automatically like, okay, yep. Like I, I can see. And so yeah. when I'm saying, hey, I'm patrol base Abate, I'm trying to get veterans in community and get them connected. It's like, well, why does that matter? Like what is, and so, you know, you and I know because we're service members, we know why being <clears throat> in a fire team, why having that tribe matters, but not, it's not, people don't necessarily un understand um, that the depth of that or why that's so important. And, and the data suggests that when you are in community, you are less likely to commit suicide. When you feel connected, when you feel like you're doing something purposeful, right? That's why we got the service element of this organization that you're, that you're in a better headspace with your mental health. And so we can pull the string and connect the dots to why this, what, what we're doing here, but it's going to take me a minute to explain that to you. And, and, and so I've got to give this pitch over and over and uh that's fine you know um I'm, I'm happy to do it but it was uh very labor intensive ultimately we formed an awesome team and all voluntary staff that was just willing to and, and my challenge to everybody was hey we're building this patrol base 
and we need everybody to fill sandbag. This is an all hands on deck. And, and, and so uh, if you know how to do IT, guess what? You wanna come fill a sandbag and do IT? If you know how to do marketing, I got a sandbag for you to fill, come, come, come fill the sandbag. And so it's gonna take everybody filling a sandbag to build this organization because we're trying to build a patrol base that fits 17 million veterans and everybody that's on active duty, right? So we, we, need, we need everybody uh, to come kind of fill a sandbag. And so, um, yeah, we built an awesome team uh, with just a, a, a bunch of great, great folks. And um, it's, we got civilians on our, like, my, I didn't know, I don't know anything about finance. So, you know, I called a buddy who I went to college with who went to Chicago booth for his MBA, who does finance. I said, hey, he's a civilian, but I picked him and I said, can you help us manage the money and tell us how to use the money and so you know we got a we got a mix of it's mostly veterans but we got definitely uh welcome civilian expertise or support uh and 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 you know and because i will never because i refuse to go out with my hand out and say hey i'm this broken damaged veteran will you help us you know i'm, I'm never going to say i'm never going to use the victim card i'm never going to portray us as as damaged uh or needy um Again, it makes it a little bit more challenging that I'm saying, hey, we're warriors. We're, we're going to build this patrol base ourselves. Uh, would you like to come help us build this thing? You know, and, and, and so uh, that's kind of where I started. And that's how we built the team that we have, which is now a very large team of supporters and volunteers. I think one of the beauties of having to give a pitch like multiple times is it feels kind of uncomfortable each time at the beginning uh, because you're like, you you feel some type of way and you're really just trying to like get across to the person that you're speaking to. Like you want them to feel it. And, but the beauty is by pitching it multiple times, it, it kind of evolves and, and it gets better each time. You have a better understanding as you walk down the path of it. And I have felt that so much with this podcast at the beginning, I was like, I we're just trying to do this thing. Like we're, we have a podcast. We want you to come on and talk bubble. And then now like after having done it a bajillion times, it's like, Hey, this is what we're offering. This is what we're trying to do. This is why we think that you would be a good fit to, to come on and talk. And um, the, the mission kind of evolves with you, with you, uh, which I think is, is cool and powerful and, and solidifies it. Um, yeah. Can you, so, so what, what on that, you know, I'm, I'm talking to guys who's, done startups guys who know how to do startups and and, and so they're saying like you got to have the mvp the minimum viable product i think is you know and so like what is it that you do what is your essence and i'm like well we kind of do this and like and like and so you're saying like that that kind of them challenging and saying like well you're kind of going down a couple of different lanes what is the thing that you do that differentiates like why does and so there is so helpful in that and, and again i found that by pitching it to people who have pitched people before and said like here's how you do it you know and then and, and the same thing with like asking for money it's like if if, if we're gonna do if this is all gonna be free of cost because we don't want any barriers to people being able to it's we got to go get some money and we gotta get you know we got the 350 acre ranch and um i'm a it's very uncomfortable for me to ask for help i had to and this is, again, this is from somebody who is in the nonprofit space who said, look, you're not asking for you. You're asking for the members of your patrol base. And once you kind of reframe that, like, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not getting paid anything. You know, I, I am asking this. Although the, the, 
I shouldn't say that there isn't any, there's a significant benefit to me leading this effort because it's so rewarding to build a space for all veterans. So I wouldn't say that like, there's nothing in it for me. There is, it's super rewarding, but- uh, Monetary you know, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right, sorry, go, what, what were you saying? Uh, no, you're fine. Uh, that's good stuff. Um, we may kind of touch on this at the end, but where can people go to to get involved with that? Um, whether maybe wanting to participate on um, in a retreat or maybe uh, meet up at a local chapter, uh, start one, etc., um, be a part of the retreats, or um, maybe work for you guys if you guys need help. Um, where can people go to get involved with that? Yeah, so we're on all the social media platforms. Uh, we're probably most active on Instagram. Uh, that's just because I have personally I have like a large base on Instagram, so I've been able to drive a lot of traffic towards uh, the, the our our Instagram web page, our our Instagram page. Um, if you go to our YouTube channel, just Patrol Base Abate, you'll find uh, all our retreat videos, which I think are so. If you're like, I still don't understand really what he what they do. You know, go 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 to go to YouTube, type Patrol Base Abate, and you'll, you'll see like. A couple of our retreat videos and i think it would make sense by the end of that and then yeah you just go to pbabate.org and uh you can either sign up to volunteer or you can sign up to join and, and so um you know the, the idea is that uh it's like well i don't have any money i don't know how i can support you or i i i don't uh I, i'm not an it or an accountant i don't know how to support you it's like well um could you share we could tell somebody about us. To me, that's filling a sandbag. You know, everybody has an ability to kind of contribute to a sandbag within this organization, even if it's just sharing our mission with somebody else. And so, you know, when we're building this patrol base out of this austere location, it's like, I don't care if you're uh, an electrician, uh, a carpenter, there's, there's, a, there, we, there's a need, you know, we'll find a way to, but ultimately the most important thing for me is that you just join the tribe, you know, you just, and, and then, get plugged into your local chapter. And then if, if there's a retreat that interests you, I hope you come out to Montana too. And so we'll post um, our summer retreat schedule by the end of this month. Uh, so the applications will be open and live by the end of this month for what we're gonna run, what programming we're gonna run this summer. But if you just wanna join, and I hope everybody who's raised their right hand is listening, goes and joins, you, you just go to pbabate.org and sign up and, and your local chapter captain is gonna reach out to you. And if you say, hey, I'm interested in, um, jiu-jitsu or lifting weights and the strength club captain or the fight club captain is going to reach out and say hey welcome to fight club and uh hey welcome to the north carolina chapter those people are, those folks will contact you where do you see pb abate going um over the next couple of years you're, you've got a really big mission and you're tackling a really really big problem where do you think you guys are in in five years yeah I think we're the largest center service organization in the country. You know, we're the we're the VFW, we're the Legion. You know, we're the for the for the modern veteran. Well, of course, any veteran who's ever served, so boomers, 50, 60, 70 years old, come on out to the patrol base, right? Uh, you're you're more than welcome. But I think this will largely appeal to the the GWAT veteran or the or the someone who's serving right now or transitioning right now. And so I I think. You know, the VFW, just think of the name, a veteran of foreign, foreign wars, right? And so it's like, if you're not a veteran of foreign war, like, do you feel welcome at a place that's built for veterans of foreign wars, you know? Um, and also the VFW, which is a great organization. I've been a member of the VFW, but you also like have to pay dues and you have to know the little secret card or punch code to get in the back door to the smoky bar, you know? And so the idea is that, that we become 
uh, that for the kind of the current generation uh, or the recent generation who served. And so I think we'll, we will grow to that. And part of that is our inclusivity and uh, the fact that everybody can see themselves represented at the patrol base. And everybody feels welcome at our patrol base. Um, I am uh, finding locations around the country who are willing to host uh, what we're going to call warriors nights. And so that's, so, so that's like, um, let's say you're part of a local chapter in the Southwest part of the United States uh, and you couldn't make it out to the patrol base uh, out to Montana in the summer. Uh, I want to have one or two warriors nights um, per year annually where as a region, you come together and, and we're going to do something again, outside in nature, around a campfire, doing some service work, uh, getting in community. And, and that way you, your local uh, it's, it's a lot more accessible to the people that who are around you. And so uh, I think we'll start to do, you'll start to see some warriors nights spring up around the country where we do a big event uh, regionally, Northwest, Pacific Northwest, uh, Southwest mountain region. So uh, I think those are going to be awesome events where we invite, where we invite like, you know, the, the, the retreats out in our headquarters are probably about 15 people. Cause I think that's about the right size. It's a squad size element to really kind of get that, uh, connectedness that we're that we're aiming for but i think these warriors nights we can you know have a couple hundred folks out and, and really have this kind of big um event so i think you'll start seeing those uh spring up um i think we'll continue to grow uh the amount of interest-based clubs we have again I, I, are you into video gaming like i don't know what you're into right but we'll we're going to meet you where you're at and, and so i think the interest-based clubs will continue to grow and then what we want to be able to do is continue to offer programming year round so that we're not just bringing out people during the summer, but that uh, we're running kind of continuous operations where we're, we're, we're going to bring you out with the thing that you're into. And so I, I would anticipate that uh, year round, a couple of times a month, we're going to be offering retreats out to our, our patrol base to do the thing that you're already into. And I would anticipate that we'll, we'll, we're going to be doing these regional events um, and that and then I, I think, again, I just think that our man, our manpower and our numbers are going to continue to grow as people uh, learn about this organization that says, hey, your service matters to us. We don't, you know, there's no ego. There's no, when, I, when we do our introductions at, at, at the retreats, I, I intentionally say, don't tell us what service you're in and don't talk about what units you've been part of. Just say like, hey, I'm Tom, nice to meet everybody. And then that kind of stuff will come up organically in conversation, but the idea is that um, we know you served and this is not, you know, there's plenty of organizations that you got to go to that say, hey, I deployed to this place and I was part of this unit. You know, that's not what we're trying to go for. We're just trying to say, hey, your service matters here. And I think that's going to resonate uh, with people. And so I, I just anticipate that that uh, is continuing to grow and, and, and local chapters who are growing. And, and really what you're going to see is that you know, where do I want to see us in five years, every weekend around the country, you're going to have members of patrol base Abate filling sandbags and walking point in their community. And so it's going to redefine and elevate the narrative around veterans. It's like not, we don't think about veterans anymore with some kind of stigma as some kind of people that uh, are, are broken or damaged or unstable that because when I see a veteran, it's this guy or gal out in my town and they're feeding the homeless and they're helping at the women's shelter and they're cleaning up the beach. And like, that's, and so to me, you know, my long term is to, to elevate 
the narrative around and reimagine what what we think about what it means to be veterans. I think we're gonna we're gonna lead that effort with that patrol base about that. I feel like I'm at like a motivational speech here. Like, dude, this that's so fantastic. Um, I like I said that that is one of the highest callings. Um, I think the first and foremost, like serving our country, and and second is serving those that serve our country. Um, that that's really fantastic. And what you've been able to accomplish, you and your team, everybody involved um, in such a short amount of time is really nothing short of remarkable. Um, and I think one thing that really sticks out to me that is truly spectacular about you as an individual is you are so clued into this problem and have your ears so close to the ground that like you aren't even a, you're still in service and that you're the whole point of everything that you've been talking about is not differentiating and, and inclusivity, but you're still in and aware of those types of problems that, um, that veteran or like post exit service people are talking about. And, and I think that that's really cool. And, and it points to the fact that you don't just feel it after service either. You, you can be feeling those types of things and um, that lack of community while you're in even. Um, so, so I think that that's really neat and um, really love and support everything that you guys are doing. What do you think what do you think are some unserved problems in the military community that uh, maybe you guys at PB Abate are looking to tackle or, or maybe things that aren't up your lane? What are some big problems that our military members are, are facing today? I think career transition. So like that's, I think you guys are feeling a need, you know, too, kind of specifically talking about uh, different pathways to finding your next career, or your next profession. I think the the transition readiness seminars, right? Every service has them, and they're kind of generally considered a joke. And, and the idea is that when you go to your transition readiness seminar, they say, "Okay, here, put on a tie, and uh, here we're going to help you write a resume. You're all set. You're going to be great. People are going to love you because you're a veteran." Like. That's not the case. And, and, and so I think, um, and I, I think also those transition readiness seminars would be better served saying, hey, you might fail a couple of times while you go out there and try to figure these things out. And rather than kind of saying like, okay, now that you know how to get dressed and wear a collared shirt and, and, and know how to do a resume, you're going to go light the world on fire. It's like, no, you're probably going to start down one path the door is going to close. Then you're going to, and so like knowing that, uh, don't, you know, you don't, you're not defeated. That doesn't mean it's over. It's like, okay. I thought I was going to do this thing after I transitioned. I had all these, you know, you spent the last year bullshitting with your buddies around the smoke pit, kind of talking about what this great idea that you had, you know, it didn't work out that way. That's fine. You know, adapt and then reattack, you know, it's, you take a tactical pause, you reassess and then you push again. And so, I think um, the, what we need to do better is, is, is to talk about these career transitions or, or pro the profession type stuff and say, hey, uh, if the first or second thing doesn't work out, that doesn't make you a failure. It's just, that's normal, you know? And so uh, the idea is you, you, you keep moving. You know, you only die when you stop moving, you know? When, when, when that's when you die. You gotta just keep moving and, and, and you'll find the thing um, that works for you. Uh, so I think that's probably, one of the biggest things that is is 
uh, underserved um, in, in the military, you know, and, but I always kind of debate like how much does the military owe you in preparation for that, that career transition? Like what I owe, what I owe you is good, hard, realistic training to prepare you for combat, and keep you alive. I also owe it to America and our nation and your family to, to hopefully make you a better citizen, to make you a better man or woman. Hopefully like you lead the service, hopefully you lead the service better than I found you. And I'm talking about morally, mentally, physically, spiritually, like just you leave a better person. But I don't know if I, what I owe you is like to make sure that you start with a six figure job. Like, I just don't know if that's in my toolkit or, or within. So, you know, but I think the military is, is progressing in the right direction a little bit in that, like, there's all these skill bridge opportunities, all these, uh, you know, and so like, we're, we're seeing an increase in that. And so like, me as a commander, I had to recognize like, okay, you're leaving and try to be supportive of you, do your skill bridge, do your internship. And, um, but also I had to balance that with like, Hey, you're a Sergeant and you got a squad and like, I still need you to train them because I'm still, you're still getting paid. And so that, that's, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it's not an easy kind of uh, challenge to kind of work through. And so um, I would say that's probably one of the most, the, the primary areas where uh, we can continue to kind of, uh, get better and, and at least get at least through our education and, and at least through having a little bit more honest conversations during transition readiness seminar rather than saying hey here's your uh here's how you tie a, a overhand windsor or whatever uh you should be great you know um that's what i would say yeah tim and i have talked at length um and we've on several episodes prior to this talked about how like you said, they don't owe you like a, a job after the service, you know, you're getting out and they've provided for you during these times. Um, I, I think that that transition class that I don't know, I'm maybe we go through the same one, but it, it's that week long thing of kind of reintegration. Here's how to write a resume. Here's how these things like, man, I, that might've been like the most unproductive week of my time in for sure. Um, you know, and there are a lot that could be improved upon that. So um, that's interesting, I guess, that you see that and, and hearing that from your perspective. And, and, um, and then the, the last part about that is just uh, letting people know that transitioning is hard and that you're going to feel a little funky, you know? So like un normalizing, feeling a little bit funky, you know, feeling mm -hmm. funky is, 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 is fine, you know? So if you feel like, hey, because we hand you a piece of paper and we say you're no longer the person that you've just been for the last four years. And it's like, well, I still have the same haircut. <laughs> you know, I still like, yeah. <laughs> uh, I feel like, I still really like feel like I'm that person that you just told me I was the last four years. I feel like I'm a machine gun section leader. Like, it's like, well, you're not, you got a piece of paper now. <laughs> and it's like, okay. Right. And, and so, you know, understanding that there's going to be some weirdness uh, in that, I, I think it's worth kind of being upfront about it. And again, it's not to say, okay, now you're a victim or now you need to be pitied. It's like, it's like, just understand like, Hey, you're going to go through a transition. Transitions are weird. Transitions are weird. Uh, you're going to be okay. Happy to try to continue to support you with, with whatever you need, but just know it's going to get a little funky and it's okay to be funky and it's okay to be okay. And so if you're feeling good, that's, there's, that's good as well. You know? And so wherever you're at, it's okay to feel good. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I kind of want to wrap up here, Tom. 
what would you say that your biggest learning is about the Marine Corps, about working with transitioning veterans, PB Abate, whatever it is, what, what's the big takeaway? What can we and uh, the listeners learn from you specifically? Yeah, it's the notion of um, being always faithful, the notion of uh, Semper Fidelis. You know, it's more than just a motto. It's, 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 a, it's a lifestyle. And the thing that has made the biggest impact on me and my service is seeing these two words, Semper Fidelis, or always faithful, being lived out to the extreme. And I, I like to point to Lance Corporal Arden Banagua. My son's middle name is Arden. He's named after him. And Arden Banagua was 18 when he got to sing, and he's a combat engineer. And he walked point. And he walked point in a minefield. He had a metal detector. Um, the issue is that the IDs were non-metallic. And so he's walking point through a minefield with a metal detector that's supposed to keep him safe when it doesn't pick up or give any signature to these non-metallic IEDs. And at the time that Lance Corporal Arbanago was killed, we had Kilo Company 3-5 had one squad of combat engineers. 12, 11 of the 13, but at the time that he was killed, 11 of the 13 were either amputees or dead. And so Arden Banagua knew ahead of time that it wasn't a matter of if, it was simply a matter of when. But never once did this 18-year-old kid turn to me and say, uh, sir, can, can someone else do this today? Can someone else walk out? Can someone else take this responsibility for me? No, instead he grabbed his rifle, put his pack on, and walked out in front of this formation every day. And it's so easy to be faithful when it's sunny out. It's so easy to be faithful when the conditions are good. It's so easy to be faithful sometimes. What if you just had to be faithful 50% of the time? I could probably easily be faithful 50% of the time. But to be always faithful, to put the semper in the fidelis, to be always faithful, that to me is what's so special uh, about Artabanagua and that up until the moment he died, he was faithful to the end. And, uh, and I owe it to him and the many Marines like him that I've served with to live with that same ideal and that same kind of conviction. And uh, that's what I'm trying to do as a dad, as a husband, uh, as a Marine leader, and with this organization is, is to try to just live up to the standards that Lance Corporal Arbanagla set and, uh, and, and to be always faithful. Can't think of much better calling for than that. Tom, this has been fantastic. You're uh, a hell of a Marine, obviously, and a hell of a human being. Uh, thank you so much for your time and coming on today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks, man.